Welcome to Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you very much for being with us today. Today, we are lucky to have on the show uh, Bob Crimmins. Bob is a longtime uh, member of the Seattle startup community, and uh, he's the founder of a a chief instigator of something called Startup Haven, uh, which is uh, an event company that uh, runs Seattle Startup Startup Poker 2.0. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. So, Bob, tell us about... Tell us about. I mean, there's so many things to talk about. You've been involved yeah. in some great, um, some great companies. Mm-hmm. You've been involved in some great um, Kickstarter campaigns. You run this thing called um, Startup Poker 2.0, which is really cool, uh, which is expanding to new cities. Talk, just talk to us about what's motivating you today. Like when you get up in the sure. morning, what what gives you what gives you that that motivation to keep going and, and, and yeah pushing well, along. Well, so I feel like I'm a founder at heart. Uh, uh, I will always be a founder. Um, I'm not actively working on my next big startup right now, but I will be sometime in the future. I don't know when that will be. Uh, Funny thing about doing a handful of startups and then working with a lot of other startups is you develop a filter for what counts as a good idea. Uh, And for me, of all the things I've learned, and I try to share this with founders, especially early founders, uh, as much as... I can and as often as I can. So I'll, I'll take this opportunity to, to share this one thing that I think I've learned after doing startups for almost 15 years. There are lots of good ideas. And we've often heard people say, oh, ideas are cheap, right? It's execution that counts and so forth. But I, I don't think that's actually right. Uh, it doesn't go far enough. Execution is necessary. A good idea is necessary. Neither one of them are sufficient. It takes a lot to make a uh, a good idea into a good startup. And and I think job number one for every founder is to figure out whether or not the good idea that they have is also potentially a good business. Many, many ideas are really, really good ideas. You get them in, uh, uh, get them on a stage in front of 100 people, tell us your idea. Okay, great. Sounds like interesting. Who, who likes the idea? 100 hands go up. That's a good idea. I like that a lot. Okay, is it also a good business? I don't know. There's nothing imprinted on a good idea that makes it also a good business. But as founders, we're passionate about what we do and we get an itch and we got to scratch it and we end up spending a lot of energy uh, and not only our own energy, right? <laughs> uh, the energy of our family and our, our colleagues, our friends who we, we bring into this thing, trying to prove that this good idea is also a good business. But as it turns out, the universe of good ideas is really big, but the universe of good companies is actually quite small. And so, you know, you better first figure out whether or not this good idea that you have even could be a good business. Now, there's a lot that goes into a good business. And certainly, you know, I don't know who doesn't suck at telling whether or not any given startup in the very early stages is going to be a big success. I suck at it. I've seen hundreds of companies. Joe, you've seen a lot of companies as a lawyer. Investors see a ton of companies at a deep level, and they still suck, right? I mean, ten percent is a yeah. great hit rate, right? So, yeah. so well, it's not. Yeah, you miss a lot. Like I've known lots of great investors who miss great investment opportunities. I mean, it's sure, just, wait, what happens? And and the problem with that, of course, is that there's a lot that can go wrong when you're trying to build a company. And even if you have, you know, look at TechStars. I, you know, I'm a mentor for TechStars. I love the program. Uh, there's a lot of great incubators, accelerators, programs out there. There's a lot of ones that, you know, I don't think really perform. However, you know, one thing that I think we've learned uh, in the in the corpus of best practices for startups in the last decade or so is team is utterly important. You have to have a really, really solid team. And in fact, if you ask, you know, uh, uh, someone from TechStars, what do you look for? in the startups that you bring in, they'll say, well, we look for three things. First is team. Second is team. And third is team. Right. right, right and, and, exactly. and having location, s- location, location. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, I, I get that. I think that's, that's, that's smart, but even that doesn't guarantee success. So you could have a, and if you don't have the benefit of being selected from, you know, six or 700 teams by really smart people who have a good eye for, you know, what's potentially a good company. Um, you're just a founder. You're just trying to work on this idea. So many things can go wrong, even if you have a great team, right? Even if you have funding, even if you have a beautiful product in a huge market, so many things can go wrong. You can The failure rate is extraordinarily high, even if you have all these things in your favor. So what do you do? So here's my prescription 
for really early founders. Okay. And if you're a serial founder and you've done it before and you've, you've got some instincts on this stuff and you've got some other experiences and relationships and things that help you uh, navigate the, the course, then this advice probably isn't good for you. But if you're an early founder, I say, yes, you got to be passionate. And we all agree that you got to be passionate about some idea. But again, I, I almost feel like that's trivial. It's necessary, but utterly insufficient. And we, I don't think we tell founders squarely enough that your passion is unimpressive. It's the cost of getting in the door. If you don't have passion, I don't even want to talk to you, right? You should go get a job at Amazon or Microsoft or wherever. But don't be fooled that your passion gives you this special edge that's going to make you overcome that 5% barrier, right? Now, if 95% of startups fail, 5% are successful. How do you get in the 5%? It's not passion. Those 95%, interview them. Ask them how passionate they were about their idea. Most of them are going to say, yeah, I was really passionate about it. I worked really hard and I still didn't succeed. So you can't control everything. It's a lot of risk. As, as we like to say in the startup world, the, you know, the exercise of building a startup is jumping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down. Uh, that's utterly true. However, I think there's one thing that a lot of startups could do early on that could help nudge them toward the 5%. And that is break out a spreadsheet, right? Strap a spreadsheet to your passion and try to make your startup, and this is a, this is a psychological um, attitude that I think you're, you're well served to bring to a startup. Sounds negative, but I really don't mean it that way. Try to make your startup fail on paper. If you can make your startup fail on paper and you can't like fix that, well, then you know you probably have a really good idea that may not be a good business. Now, you don't have to abandon it. Go find really smart people. And that's what advisors are for. Go find people who know what is it, what's customer acquisition cost in your space, right? You can find people, right? You can find people who understand the competitive landscape. They understand regulatory requirements. You can find people who can help you with your startup uh, from every angle from every aspect that you need to have knowledgeable people. You know, when we talk about team, what makes a team? Well, yeah, you know, smart people who can work together, but it's also some domain expertise too. So if you can quantify your assumptions, because we all, we all make assumptions about our startup. Uh, and at the, at the most simple level, and we, you know, this is a common refrain. I think we hear from a lot of uh, experienced mentors and advisor, you know, they want to make sure that even if you can't solve the problem right now, at least you're thinking in terms of there's going to be a cost to acquire customers, build a product and deliver it. And then I'm going to extract value for doing that. And that value better be more than the cost that it takes to produce that product. Otherwise, you'll go a few years and you'll find out you can't be profitable. You can, you can get customers, you can make money, you can have revenue, but you can't be profitable. And there's a lot of scenarios, of course, where you don't actually have to be profitable and you can get acquired before you ever get even sales, right? Uh, but again, I'm, I'm, you know, this is advi this advice is for early founders who have a, have what they think is a good idea, and their friends and family tell them it's a great idea, but they haven't really talked to customers yet, which is a huge mistake. But you know, you're 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 trying to figure out if you you should quit your job. You know, I I cringe a little bit. Um, I'm out in the community quite a bit. I hear a lot of people talking to people, and you know, uh, a lot of founders who haven't quit their job yet are excited about the prospect of quitting their job. And they're trying to like, I want to, I want to quit my job. I want to do this full time. And I think we encourage people a little too much to take the risk with us, join us in this fraternity of risk takers. It's uh, you know, it's a very romantic thing to do these days right. uh, to be a startup founder. You could do it too. And, and it's, you know, utterly egalitarian. You want to be one, quit your job and be one. That's all it takes. It's super, super easy, right? If you can, if you can take that risk and make that choice, there's no barrier that stops you from doing that. However, I think we should. Here, here's, here's how I put a little twist on that analogy about drop, jumping off a cliff and building the plane on the way down. Nothing in that, and that's true. That's I think it was uh, Reed Hoffman, I think, who sort of immortalized that phrase, um, and it's true enough. However, nothing in that says you have to design the plane on the way down. Right. You just have to build it on the way down. The clock starts, like in, in one way to think about it is, the clock starts the day you leave, you leave your job, right? Now you're living off your savings, you're living off your significant other's earnings, your bank account is in jeopardy now. So, you know, you have a runway. 
uh, or a vertical drop, right, before you hit the ground. So the pressure's on. It's really, really hard to succeed. Uh, but you don't have to start the timer. You know, you don't have to jump off the cliff until you've figured out, God, is there really a business here? Because even if there really is a business there, your chances of success are still really low. Even if there's like quantifiably, verifiably a good business opportunity there, you still run a huge risk of failing. And so a lot of people say, well, yeah, but that's what it's all about. You should embrace the risk. Well, ultimately you have to, you don't have a choice. It's, it's risky no matter what you do. But I firmly believe after seeing uh, so many companies through all the mentoring that I do and the advising that I do, you know, work on really good things with really good people and having all the resources and still not getting there. Um, I haven't, I don't have permission to, to, to talk about this, uh, uh, but, you know, I won't use names, but there was a company, uh, a founder of a company, a co-founder of a company here in Seattle. They built a company for a few years. They sold it to a massive company for a big amount of money. The founders went off and did various things. One of them started a company that was trying to make connections, hook people up in various ways to add value. Uh, uh, and, you know, they got some early traction. They moved to the Bay Area. They got into one of the big accelerator programs. They raised a big pile of money. And then three years later, they send the email saying, hey, we're shutting it down. It didn't work. We couldn't figure out how to make money. There's no shame in that. That's, that's awesome that 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 these guys had the opportunity to work on that. They, they thought they could figure it out. Everybody thought they could figure it out. Uh, and who am I to judge whether or not they should? I would never say they shouldn't have done that. But as an early entrepreneur who maybe hasn't done this before, you have the opportunity to learn about those things and figure out, like, what stopped them. You, you, know, you can go read stories. We don't like to, you know, our friends at, at GeekWire and, and other news outlets, um, you know, they all do us a great service. Every time they write about a company that failed, and to the extent that they can go in depth about what went wrong. I mean, this is a company we all loved. We used it. We thought it was great. Right. And it failed. Wait a minute. That one wasn't supposed to fail. That one had super smart people, experience, resources, you know, credibly a good idea. And they still didn't make it, right? So as an early entrepreneur, getting into this for your first time, you know, my advice is, and, and often I'll spend, you know, you know my rule has been, uh, I don't know if I can sustain this, but like anyone who was a serious founder who, who wasn't working full-time at some job, I'll have coffee with you. I will listen. You tell me your idea. Tell me your traction, your progress, what your plans are, what you need help with. And I'll, I'll just have coffee with you, right? Uh, and it usually takes about 15 minutes, roughly, to kind of understand what they're trying to do. And then I'll just start asking questions. Like, okay, so how big is this market? How much do they pay to solve this problem right now? Um, you know, what do you think it will cost you to acquire a customer and what's your plan for monetizing that customer? And very often, I won't, I won't speculate a percentage, but very often the answers reflect virtually no thought, no deep thought about what it would be like to actually build and deliver this thing to a customer base who would pay you for it and would pay you enough that you could be profitable. So let me hit the pause button here for a second. Yeah. So customer acquisition costs, um, or CAC. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so let's say Mike and I are starting a software as a service business, and we've got some funky idea about who knows what it is. Yeah. Make you know who knows a, a tool for lawyers to do something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, and we haven't we haven't done a very good thought process or a, a good thought experiment yet on what it's going to cost to acquire customers. How how do you how do you advise us to go find out? Like how do we determine the number? Like, what's your advice on how do we go yeah. figure it out? Look for comps. This is the simplest thing. Okay. So what other companies have customers like yours okay. that they're selling a product that's similar? Is it a SaaS product? Is okay. it, you know, is but how am I possibly going to get that data? That's a private company almost always. But every, there's, there's a, a thousand blogs that talk about startup stuff. And okay. they talk about just go to Google, your good friend Google, and type in. Customer acquisition costs for a SaaS startup. And you will find 100 articles okay. where people just talk about that, right? And then, you know, when you go, one of the things I like about being um, quantitative is it gives you something to ask questions about, right? Right. So next time you're in a room at some startup networking event and you run into somebody who's kind of in the space, right? Oh, 
hey, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what what would a reasonable cost of acquisition be for a customer in this space? You're kind of in my, what what are you guys saying? Oh, well, you know, let's, I don't know if I can talk. You know, just have a conversation. Talk them into telling you something that can be helpful. But if you never think about that question and you never try to quantify it, you'll never be able to answer it, right? And it's really, really important to be able to answer it. In fact, there's another company and, and I won't use names, but there is a company uh, that was doing really, really well. They raised great money under what most people would call unbelievable terms. And uh, they were off to the races. And then the market switched. The cost of acquisition over the course of about 18 months in mobile, it just did a judo flip. It went upside down. And it was so expensive that the model that they had you know, rigorously planned out, like, we're going to be able to do this. And here's why. Because we can get customers for the da 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 And then over the course of about 18 months, those metrics just changed. Right. And they had to shut the business down. Wow. Because the metrics no longer worked. Now, these the really smart people who were at least aware enough to know what the metrics had to be so that they had some signal that like, you know what, unless we have a really credible story about how we're going to turn this around, then there's no company here. And they shut it down. They still had some money in the bank. They did the right thing. Uh, huh. You know, that that's a really courageous thing to do when you think about it. And, and one of the hardest things, right. you know, and, and I'll say as a, a mentor and as an advisor the hardest conversations are often like, I don't, I don't know. Should I keep going? Right. I, I'm not seeing the traction. It's really hard. Like, it's really hard to let go. When do you sometimes, pull the plug? <laughs> sometimes it's impossible, almost impossible to let go. Yes. Yeah, Joe, Joe and I have talked about this like uh, a few times on the podcast where we, you know, mm. like uh, making, making the right choice about when to stop because a typical startup, if it's, if you run the full course, you're looking at a good chunk of time, maybe seven to 10 years if, if the startup gets some traction. And we've talked about this a couple of times. I mean, in your lifetime, assuming, let's say you start doing startups at the age of 20, you know, how many of those 10 year spans do you have? So you, you maybe only have like seven or eight, maybe six, six shots at, at, at a startup. So like yeah. you, you gotta be really careful about which one you choose because, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not like you're, um, a VC or an angel investor where you can spread your bets out over like a bunch of different, a bunch of different companies. You got to like pick, pick one horse and ride it for a while. Exactly. So that's the beauty. So you just, Michael, you just described why I get so passionate about this notion of be quantitative, try to make your startup fail before you quit your job or before you go get investors, before you, you know, talk other people into quitting their jobs, you should have a really cogent story that you can tell yourself about how this could be successful. And if you can't, if you can't tell the cogent story, you need to overcome your, uh, your emotions about this, your passion for this, and let it go. There's no shame in letting a good idea go. If you, if you, if you understand that the universe is full of really good ideas, but they're not also good businesses, and if you can't find an idea that you can you know, show to yourself and to others who would understand what's at stake and, and what's important in that particular business in that particular market, then let it go. That's actually a win, right? Yeah. You, you want to find out early. You want to know yeah. if it's because ideas well, are, uh, are hard to predict, like what's going to hit and what doesn't. The faster you can find that out, the better. Uh, well, we've had, think I, about the opportunity cost. If you're yeah, an engineer yeah. and lots of startups get built by engineers or just a, a really smart marketing person or whatever you are in this, in the tech world, we get paid way too much. Right. So, you know, most engineers, if you're competent enough to build a product that users could use, you could probably get a six figure job, you know, at any of the tech companies around the region. That six figure job and sometimes very high six figures, you know, when you quit that job, that's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars every year that you do this. You do this for three years. That's four hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of opportunity costs that you put into this thing. It's worth a little bit of your time to say, you know, this is a good idea. And I heard once that good ideas aren't always good businesses and I should suss this out first. Let me go see if I can suss this out. If I can't tell a cogent story, look, no, no story you tell yourself, or, and even if you get advisors and investors and mentors to tell you that that's a cogent story, that's no guarantee. I'm not saying you can, you take the risk out. I'm saying, but if you can't tell a cogent story, then what, what does that say about your chances, right? Take, take some time, Try to tell a story that's quantifiable because at the end of the day, remember, startups are not projects. They're not hobbies, right? We treat them that way too often. They're a business. I was on a kick some years ago. Like I'd be talking with somebody as a mentor and advisor and they start talking about their startup. And I said, well, well, let me stop you there. Let's, let's call it a startup business for a while and just, right? So we can respect the fact that what we're trying to build here is actually a business. What do businesses do? Businesses make money. They're profitable, right? Now, 
that sounds very boring and uh, dispassionate to someone who's like, no, but I just want to solve this problem for mankind and make the world a better place. And I'm like, okay, great. You could do that. I'm not going to stop you from doing that. But you should just know that if you can't tell a cogent story, you got to wonder, like, what you're relying on. Are you, you're waiting for the miracle to happen, right? Even if you can tell a cogent story, I can tell you right now it's going to be wrong, right? But at least you can tell a story where the pieces hang together and people who are knowledgeable about the factors that would make that a successful business can at least give you the uh, half of a thumbs up to say, you know, that's maybe it's a little optimistic, but yeah, I could see that happening. If you can't even do that, right, then you truly are rolling the dice, right? And you, what you're rolling the dice with, you know, if you're 20 something, you know, you do have a few, go ahead, roll the dice. It's fun. Being a startup founder is fun. You're going to get kicked in the gut every other day, uh, but the highs overcome the lows and it's a great thing for a while until your savings is gone, you lost your relationships, nobody wants to hang out with you, you, you lose touch with what it means to have a real social life because you're 24-7 on this crazy startup. Now, being on a crazy startup is great if you have that sort of... Uh, um, that secret sauce, right? And maybe you can't quite articulate it. And that's partly where passion kind of puts on blinders. And we say, well, I know I can't do a spreadsheet about how this thing's going to be successful, but I just know it. I feel it, right? <laughs> I just feel it. And, you know, all I can say to you is great. If Let me know how I can help. But, you know, if I, if I could start a marketplace where I just short every single startup, I'd be a gazillionaire, well, right? Well, there's, there's, there's websites where people sell their products that they built. They don't make any money for relatively yeah. expensive yeah. amounts of money. Yeah. Just shop there and pick one up. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so anyway, all of that about, is to say... You about know, validation in general. Yeah. I mean, so to take, the tra to take this to sort of some practical things about how people can avoid this <laughs> trap, I, I, think, I can think of two things. Uh, validation wise, that would be fun to talk about. One is this thing that, that, that everyone talks about in terms of like a minimum viable product or even, even better, some kind of a landing page concept where you can, you can create a landing page for whatever it is you're working on, do some advertising, try to drive people to it and see what kind of response you get, whether people give you their email address and say they want to hear more, you know, even, even I've heard of people going to the extent of putting a buy button next to whatever it is they're selling and, and seeing if they can get people to convert. And then once they convert, they say, Oh, sorry, you know, this thing isn't ready to ship or, or, you know, so give us your name, but, but just to see, to see what it looks like and how hard it is to get someone to click that buy button for whatever the idea is. Um, I've never done that myself, and I and I it seems kind of idealistic. I've heard I've heard it thrown around a lot. I don't think it's certainly not a new idea, but I wonder. I mean, have you ever done anything like that for any business, or do you know any startups that have yeah, set up that, have. that basically <laughs> like a, a mock up almost of of what yeah. the product is? Yeah. So you're what you're describing is a tactic of what we you know generally refer to as lean methodology for building startups, and the notion that you need to talk to customers first and then respond to what they tell you they want instead of what you think they want. And, and uh, I think that for many, many, many decades, the, the principles that drove startups were someone with some domain expertise who saw a problem and said, oh, I can solve that. And then they would go off and they'd work 18 to 36 months to build some big fat thing and they'd launch it. And then, you know, big surprise, they got it wrong because they didn't think they needed to talk to any customers because they knew, right, they were a customer. They had the problem. They solved it the way they would want it to be solved. And so they must have done the right thing. Um, that's, I think, pretty widely accepted as bad practice, right? We don't, we, we don't do that anymore, or we shouldn't. Lots and lots of um, early entrepreneurs do that, uh, and some experienced ones too. But, and, and it does work sometimes. And that's, we have this, this challenge, generally for startups, uh, it's called the survivor bias. And, you know, John at GeekWire is going to write a great story about this company who did this thing and against all odds and it was successful and it was great. And, and we all are inspired by those stories of success. Uh, but the principles that drove that company's success are anecdotal, right? It's like, you know, any given story could go any different number of directions. Uh, and when we see a startup that, you know, refuses to believe the naysayers and doesn't worry about figuring it out, uh, uh, telling that cogent story, but instead they just, they keep at it and they, and they pivot and they pivot and they pivot and they pivot. And seven times later, you know, seven years later, they're an, you know, overnight, you know, seven year overnight success. Um, and those are 
I love it when, when we tell the stories and, and I love to read those stories and I learn something from every one of them. But if you're not, uh, if you're not acquainted with the risks of being a startup founder, you might read some of those stories and, and, and only be inspired, right? And not be uh, warned, right? You'll only be inspired. And a, I, yeah. Have you ever seen, there's this great talk that, um, that a guy, I, I, I have to look up his name, but this talk was done at, at a conference called XOXO in Portland. Um, and, and the title of the talk was, uh, oh, it was something like, uh, everything I learned about winning the lottery or something like that. And and it was, it was, it was a spoof of all these talks by companies talking about how successful they are and all the things they did and what worked. But, but the whole thing was about how he won the lottery. And he's like, I didn't give up. I kept playing. And then when, when the, when buying one ticket a week didn't work, I came up with a strategy where we would buy three tickets every week. And he goes into this like really complex, like thought process into how they played the lottery. And he's like, you know, and I, and I won and it's, and it, the whole thing is just, like to prove the point that like, you know, winning the lottery has nothing to do with any of this stuff, but you're still, if somebody wins, you know, and it, it, the same thing applies to startups. Startups are a bit more uh, skill-based hopefully the, the best uh, run startups win, but it doesn't necessarily mean that sometimes it's just the luck no, of the draw. That's right. And, and uh, you know, you are, you're out there on your own and every, every map is different. There is, there is no map. Every, every uh, path to a successful startup is different. And you have to figure it out as you go. And there is, and, and, and you know, don't mistake what I say when I say you should get a spreadsheet out and you should quantify your assumptions. And then you should get experts who understand what your assumptions are and tell you if you're crazy or not, right? And if you are crazy, then you should go figure out how to fix that. And if you can't fix that, that's when you should listen to the naysayers. There's a lot of people who just they're just negative about startups, right? And they'll just tell you you're crazy, and they'll tell you no, this will never work. They're not doing that from a you know, quantifiably defensible, you know, they're going from their gut or their general experience and, and their thoughts about something. But if you are methodical about it and quantitative about it and you say, yeah, I'm going to build the startup and here's the product and here's the problem I'm going to solve and here's who I'm going to solve it for and here's how much they're going to pay for it, da, 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 da. And you take that to people who know. And that's why it's important to have good advisors and to have good mentors who can help you quantify those things. First of all, help you figure out, and a lot of the time I spend with startups is helping them figure out what questions they should ask. Like, okay, I tell them you should have a spreadsheet. Oh, could you have an example? Like, what is a spreadsheet? Well, it's different for every company. There's some basic things that are, you know, are, are similar. Uh, but helping them figure out what questions should I be asking about my startup? And, you know, a very, very simple thing. Uh, like, if you ever want to make sure you're giving really good advice to a startup, tell them they need to go talk to customers. They say, oh, we have talked to customers. Oh, how many have you talked to? Oh, talk to, to, to. that's not enough. Go talk to more customers, right? That's always good. You'll like, you'll never be giving bad advice if you tell people they need to go talk to their customers more. The reason that that's almost never bad advice is because startups almost never do that enough. So they can always do it more. And when they do that, they collect more data that informs their assumptions, that feeds into this model that they have this idea around. And their startup will get better and better and better. And the, to the extent that you can do that before you have bet the farm and started the clock and have the runway, you know, diminishing in front of you, the, you know, the sooner, the earlier you can do that, the better off you're going to be. And in those cases where you can't make it work on paper, you ought to think, well, if I can't even make it on paper with assumptions, right, that I get to dial, I put, put a number in a cell and look at what it looks like in, in four years, if I can't even make that work, then I got to, I just have to assume I'm missing something and I got to go figure that out. And if I can't, should feel good about letting it go. In fact, I remember one time I was, um, I was mentoring a company in Techstars. Uh, it was like the second or third year of Techstars here. So it was a while ago. And, you know, these guys were <clears throat> running up against uh, some real serious problems with their business model. And what they discovered was they could actually be successful at what they thought they wanted to build. They had this idea for a product and they, they had all the expertise to build it. They could sell it to customers that they had in mind. They had this market strategy. And what they found was even if they were successful in building the product that they wanted to solve the problem that they wanted for the customers that they wanted and that those customers would pay what they wanted them to pay, it still was not a viable business, right? So, you know, we talked for uh, a couple of weeks about different strategies, how to think, you know, and of course they were worried about like, should we shut it down? It was clear they should shut it down. Um, there was no cogent story to tell about how this gets to be, you know, a scalable business, uh, except, and a miracle happens, right? So if you can't 
depend on a miracle happening, you know, the reality is you got to you got to maybe make the choice to shut it down. So I just found that as we were talking, he was talking as though he was put on this earth to do this one. He had discovered what he needed to be as a founder. Like he was so emotionally attached to this idea that it was, you know, it was his baby. We talk about this as, you know, giving birth to a startup and we get so emotionally attached to things. He felt that if he didn't do this one, he was done. He would have failed as a founder. And, you know, as sort of a, a startup midwife, you know, I felt like my job then was to help him understand that, no, startups fail a lot. Lots and lots of successful entrepreneurs take many, many tries before they get it right. You shouldn't. In fact, he was thinking as though he would only get one startup opportunity. And, and what I told him was, and I've used this many times now, and it's been an effective way, I think, to help people think about this. Even if you're a first-time founder, you should think of yourself as a serial founder because you are a serial founder. Even if, It's just your first one, but it's not your last one. I mean, very few founders do one startup and then they're done, right? Uh, there's always this sort of latent, you know, hanging around, like maybe three years, five years, ten years. You know, once you've done it, you, you sort of feel like, you know, you could do it again. But most founders go from one, they shut it down, within 90 days they're on to the next one, right? right? So it's a very common practice to be a serial founder. So I told him, no, think of, this is just the first one. You can let it go, right? Lots of founders had to let it go. You can let it go too. You're a serial founder, right? You're not a, a one-time founder, you're a serial founder. Get on to the one that's going to work. The more you drag your feet around you know, letting this one go, the longer it's going to take you to get to the one that's going to work. Nothing tells you that this is going to work. So you should do what a serial founder would do. And that is, okay, I'm not emotionally attached to this. I tried to make a business that didn't work. What's the next one, right? Right. Almost reminds me a little bit of what you, what you if you study Buddhism, what they teach you about letting things go. <laughs> that's right, yes. Reminds me a little bit of that. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. Uh, Buddhism in practice for startups. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea. Yeah, yeah. that's a tough one, though, because, like, you do get so intensely, um, you know, just sort of, um, fixated on something that yeah. you're working on. It's uh, it's human nature. I think that's one reason why I tell people, I'm like, hey, the best reason to have an advisor is not necessarily because they're smarter than you or anything like that. It's because they're not, they're not in the weeds with you. They're not they're not fixated like you are. They're they're elevated. They're above that. They're yeah. spending most of their time doing something else. And so when you go and talk to them once every month or two months, they're they're not in the, they haven't been in the weeds with you for 60 days. Yeah. And so they are going to see things you haven't seen. That's, it's hard to do that when it's you and it's your idea and it's your baby. And it's so, it's so hard. Totally right. And, and I would, I would counsel startups too to pick advisors who they think will give them tough love. Uh, you know, once, you know, we'll be brutally honest with yeah. you. Cause if you pick people who like you, like, I mean, your friends and family are, are, you know, they love you dearly, but they're the most useless resource for a startup because, they just want to support you, and right. right? It's hard uh, to find. It's hard to find somebody who's like the right balance of like you know, direct and to the point, and not fooling around, yet also kind and compassionate, yeah. and not a jerk. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're, there's lots of people who just, want to be, who just seem to like have a proclivity for, I mean, just sort of telling people like negative things, which I mean, not always helpful. Well, reality-based planning, I think, is a really important skill habit for startups to, to, to get to, to develop. Um, at the end of the day, you're trying to build a company. Companies are profitable. They, they build value for people, right? right? They convert the value that they build for, for individuals, companies into profits for themselves and their investors and their team. And if you can't do that, you're not, you're not a startup, right? You can do those things and those things can be fun to do. And you, you know, I'm not telling you don't go have fun and do a project. Uh, but unless you want to be a not-for-profit, then and there are lots of startup not-for-profits. I mentor a lot. I actually love mentoring uh, nonprofits. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're not a non if you're a for-profit startup, right? There's two things you can be. You can be a B Corp too, which is kind of a blend, but still, it's for-profit. Um, so you're either not-for-profit or you're for-profit. Th those two uh, distinguishing factors are utterly important, but we don't think about them because we're passionate about solving a problem. And you should be. Good founders are passionate about solving a problem. But the, to the extent that you can also spend a little bit of your time working on the business, right? You I think you just inch yourself closer and closer and closer to the 5%. 
the more you're focused on, yeah, but do I have a cogent model here? Is this a model that can develop into a profitable business? And if it can't, if you can't make it look like that, then, you know, you should just be honest with yourself and everybody that you bring in, right? You know, as, as a, a founder, that passion does a lot of things, right? It gets you through the hard times, right? Keeps you driven to solve this problem. Uh, it also persuades others to spend time with you, right? So as a founder, you know, one of the biggest jobs you're going to have as a founder is recruiting a team. And if you don't have the passion that people go, oh, man. I, I want to be. I want to be with you on this journey. This is amazing. I love what you're doing. You just you got me into this, and I I I want to join you. So you know, if you don't have a cogent business model that at least someone could tell a story about how this is going to be a great thing for everybody who gets involved, you're asking people to 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 take on their own opportunity risk to spend their time with you. You owe it to them to at least in your own head be able to tell a cogent story. And once you can tell a coach a story, I can tell you'll be even more persuasive. Yeah. So if you think you're like, you're the slick sales guy, you can just convince anybody that this is a badass thing and they should get involved. Yeah. That's great skill to have, uh, uh, you know, be the hustler. But a hustler with a freaking cogent story, that's, that's magic, right? To be able to say, it's, look, I know I'm passionate about this. This is important. To do, but let me also show you the numbers. I understand the numbers. And by the way, unless you find a really aligned you know, mission aligned investor, mostly, and things ebb and flow and, you know, the market for investors, uh, for raising money changes uh, from time to time. But, you know, it's the classics never change. Traction, right? A cogent story and traction. Investors love it, right? We always talk about how hard it is to raise money. Well, it's really hard to raise money if you don't have traction. And it's, if you don't have a cogent story that they all recognize as, wow, really, you could do that like that. Put a dollar in, turn a crank, $4 comes out. You can do that. Yep. How do you know? Well, I talked to this advisor and that advisor, and they all said, yes, you can get a customer. Yes, this will happen. Yes. They all have validated this is reasonable thinking. That goes a long way in the absence of traction to convincing people that they ought to get involved, either as a team member or as an advisor or as a, uh, uh, an investor. Uh, so, geez, Go try to build a story, like a cogent story, not the not the the uh, not the passion story. You got to have the passion story. And when you're up there pitching to investors on demo day, if you're in an accelerator or over coffee, your passion should come through. They sh nobody should doubt whether or not you're committed to this idea that you you like eat, drink, sleep solving this problem. Uh, but how much better is it to also be to say, oh, and by the way, so let me walk you through the spreadsheet. So here's what we're assuming is going to happen for this and for that. And if this happened, and this is how we respond to that. Da, da, da. Wow. The passion to solve the problem and the business acumen to build a model that might actually turn into a profitable company, right? The story will be wrong, right? And the investor knows like that spreadsheet, the assumptions, you know, they're probably not all right, but at least you're thinking about it the right way. And you went and got the right kind of people to validate some of those numbers that you're trying to trying to justify and so forth. So I think that's all good. And, you know, all of this too, I remember, um, you know, Dave Chappelle. Hey, Dave, how are you if you're listening? Do you remember Dave Chappelle? Yeah. Yeah. Dave was great. Uh, and he's, uh, he was, I will say, picked on by the startup community. Like everybody wanted to take his time away from him and like have coffee, right? Dave was, back in the day, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, you know, Dave was living the experience and really smart guy and was doing a lot of things in the startup world that, uh, you know, a small percentage of founders actually get to do, like right. raising money, building a team, delivering a product, so forth. And people, and he was he was a, a very helpful guy. He wanted to help people. Yeah. And, you know, as word gets out, and, you know, Dave would speak occasionally, whatever, it's like people would, you know, send him an email, hey, Dave, can I buy you a coffee? But I was one of those guys once. I, I, you know, I tried to be uh, uh, respectful of his time, but I remember he had posted something somewhere saying, you know what, I had a charge, I forget what he said, like 400 bucks for coffee. Right. If you really think I'm helpful to you, then, you know, you should be willing to compensate me for my time. Because if I just if I said yes to everybody who want to have coffee right. with me, I'd have no time for my own stuff. Right. right. So how do I say no? Well, maybe I'll just start. I don't think you, I don't think you ever did. I don't, I don't recall if you ever did. But, you know, something like give me a hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks, whatever. And then I'll have coffee with you. Yeah. And as a filter, it actually makes some sense. Uh, but it's hard to. To. um magnify or to grow your impact. And if you want to help people, like you practically speaking, you just can't do it. You can't help enough people. 
And so that was partly what had happened with this whole poker thing years ago, if I could tell you that story. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So literally, I guess it's more than it was 10 years in last October. Uh, I wanted to learn how to play poker. I had learned to play online, which basically means, you know, you can click a button and you can like follow a prompt or some cheat sheet or whatever. And you can play poker for a nickel, dime, but whatever it was. And I was playing online poker and I thought I was all that, right? I figured out strategy. I read it, read an article or something and I was playing poker. I thought, man, I want to go play live poker. So I went to a card room up in North and I sat down to this like $10 tournament and I was mortified I had never actually sat around a poker table with live human beings and had to handle chips and cards. And I didn't know I was knocking my chips over and I was shaking and I, oh, is it my turn? Like the whole betting pattern thing. Like when you're just like clicking a button, it's, you know, it makes all the decisions for you. And I just felt like every one of these players at the table were peering deep into my soul and knew everything I was thinking and feeling. Like I, I had the, had the worst poker face ever. And I just felt like they're reading all my actions. They know what my cards are uh, even before I, I look at them. So after that, I decided, you know, I'm not going into another card room until I learn how to play against real people. I was the very first one to bust out of that tournament. Uh, and I went, went home with a tail between my legs and I said, yeah, I want to, I want to learn how to play this game with real life people. So I just started asking my friends and colleagues, hey, hey, do you want to play? Da, da, da. I mean, back in the day, if this were 10 years ago and we were doing what we're doing right now, I'd say, hey, Joe, by the way, I'm trying to learn how to play poker. Do you want to play? We're trying to get a little game together, right, just to learn how to play. Uh, and all the people that I hang out with in the it, back then were founders, execs, and investors. That's like who I – and then service providers too, bankers and lawyers and so yeah. forth. And so I just started asking my my colleagues. I'd have a meeting with somebody who was a founder. But, hey, you want to play? We're trying to learn. Do you, are you interested? So we got this little game together. We were lucky to get six or eight people a month. We move it around from house to house. And uh, it was great. I learned how to play, like, to hold cards, to, like, shuffle and deal and all the, all the things that you need to, you know, how do you count your chips and so forth. And I, and I did. It took a few months. And I kind of like, oh, this was a really great experience. I was meeting great people. But what I noticed, which I totally wasn't expecting, was that when you get enough of the right kind of people around a poker table, like utterly unexpected magical stuff happens, right? Poker is this weird game that it's just a game. To me, it's just a, it's a game that you use with cards and tokens called chips. Uh, But it has this interesting pace where you sit around the table, like you're not in every hand. So you have time to kind of, it's quiet. You can chat the guy, Hey, what are you working on? You know, how how was, how was summer? Whatever you're doing, you can just get to know somebody, right? And then there's these crescendos of like a really big pot and everybody's on edge. Like, oh my God, this is, right? Or there's a really bad beat where somebody's just so confident they got, you know, aces full of kings and, you know, somebody comes up with four nines and blows right. Some really bad beat. Uh, they suck out on the river, if you know poker. You know, some really low probability event happens that busts a really great. And everybody's, oh my God, it's a this big crescendo of activity and everybody's high-fiving and oh my God and, and so forth. Yeah, And it has this kind of, bonding effect on the people who are there. You kind of feel like you went through something and there's a few of these crescendos every night. Uh, so after going through this a few night, a few months, uh, and, in, and in addition, we were sort of kicking the families out, whoever's house it was at. It's like, you know, we'd, we'd be there till one or two in the morning. Yeah. And so, um, I said, you know, this is really fun. I kind of felt like I learned how to play poker, but I, uh, I want to grow it. I want to get more of these people together to see what happens when, you know, two guys in a garage are sitting next to the manager of $400 million venture fund yeah. who sit next to, you know, an exec who's retired because he had an exit and right. All these things that you don't find in the general startup networking event arena. Right. So I moved it to my office, my startup at the time we were downtown, we had a nice big office that we could easily fit two, maybe three tables in and just started growing the invite list. Right. And, and sure enough, uh, it went to, we were always had two tables and we always had three. And then all of a sudden we had to move to the big conference room in our, in our building down on the second floor because now we had four tables and then five tables. And it was like, you know, it was free. It was always free, but you know, we sort of sell out, right. We, we'd be at capacity. Right. And I'm like, wow, that that's amazing. I'm meeting all these amazing people. People are coming together, helping each other. At the time I was just buying the beer and pizza myself. Yeah. And uh, Voyager Capital said, Hey, you know, this is really fun. Uh, why don't you let us sponsor? I'm like, oh, sponsor? Well, uh, I don't want you to write me a personal check. I got to create something for you to write a check to. So I created this thing called Startup Haven. 
at the time I was doing some brown, brown bag lunches for, we were trying to recruit developers. I thought, wouldn't it be great? I'll bring in some cool speakers and a lot of developers come into our office for this brown bag and then they'll get to learn about our company and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll be able to hire a developer. Yeah. And uh, so this thing just sort of took on a life of its own. It kept growing and growing. Uh, we were at wait list most months. But then word got out, guys like you, Joe, you, you ruined it for oh, everybody. Jesus, it was me? Well, you're kind. Oh, my God. Uh, so certainly, you know, if you did have an event where it was founders, execs, and investors yeah. coming together once a month, like 40 or 50 of them. Yeah. And I said, hey, do you want to come? You'd probably say, yeah, I'll go to that. That's yeah. my, uh, that's perfect for me, right? Yeah. Uh, and so sure enough, you know, as the invite list grew, there were lots of my friends who were service providers were all great people. Love them dearly. Fun to play poker with. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you're like at capacity and you have to start telling people, no, like we're full. Yeah. And I'm telling, an, you know, entrepreneurs and investors, sorry, we're full. Because Joe RSVP'd the moment the invite went out because yeah. he was going to be a, have a seat at that table. Yeah. So after some time, I forget how many months this was, it's probably 18 months or so into this. It's like 50% of the chairs are full of bankers, lawyers, real estate, Right. Because it's like red meat. Sure. I'm serving up red meat on a platter, and you'd be a fool not to RSVP immediately yeah. when that invite hits your inbox, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is great, but you know, I wasn't doing this to help drive business for service providers. I was doing this because I wanted to help connect founders, first of all, founders to founders. Yeah. Uh, but then also, you know, bringing some investors in was fun too. So there was a Black Thursday, and I cut everybody off. Wow. Crazy. I took every single service provider who was on the uh, invite list off and I sent them an, a nice email saying, hey, love you like a brother. But here's the deal. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for founders. Yeah. Now, uh, by this time, Voyager, Kretsu, um, uh, Madrona, some other investor types, uh, a couple of other sponsors, you know, law firm, Silicon Valley Bank did a little something. You know, yeah. They're like, hey, let us help out. Right. Let sure. us help out. And I'm like, okay, that's supporting the event. So if you want to come, you have to be a sponsor. It travels very close to the earth. It's not a big expensive thing. But I said, look, if you want to come, you can sponsor and then you can come. Only sponsor come. And I'm only going to limit it to a few, right? If there's more than two or three chairs that are occupied by sponsors, then I'm doing the wrong thing. Right. So I did that. And uh, the vibe just immediately flipped back to where it was, where it was like, it was a place where founders could go yeah. to let down their guard. And connect with other founders and help each uh, No one can help a founder, in my view. No one can help a founder more than some other founder who's been through what they're going through. Right. Uh, and it sort of took on a life of its own. So now it's been 10 years, right? And a few years ago, uh, we tried it in Portland. Kind of worked. It's like, well, okay, turns out it's a universal thing. Yeah. Uh, and then we did it in San, San Diego. And it worked even, you know, in my view, it worked even better in San Diego. Like, wow, this thing... It's almost, it feels like what product market fit should feel like if you were doing a startup. Now, this was just a passion project, and it will be a passion project uh, forever. Uh, but then I thought, well, all right, I'm going to try to launch. all the in, in Portland and San Diego, other founders who would come to events and like, oh, this is so great. I really want to bring this to my city. Can I be your guy down here? I'm like, oh, let's give it a try. I thought, well, I'm going to try to take it to San Francisco okay. and try to transplant it there. So a uh, friend of mine, Danielle Morell, if you know her, yeah. uh, terrific uh, uh, person, yeah. uh, great founder. Uh, she's off to the races on Mattermark right now, which is yep. terrific. Uh, she's also a bitchin' poker player. Wow, that's crazy. And years and years ago, she came to Poker 2.0. Poker it yeah. was her first one. She won first place. Wow, that's great. And uh, it was terrific. Uh, and so when I went, I was going to go down there. She had moved and started her company down there uh, in San Francisco. So I I sent her an email, said, hey, I'm yeah. coming down. I want to have lunch. Can we have lunch? Da, da, da. And in the course of that lunch, you know, she agreed to be the person, the host down in San yeah. Francisco. And Sure enough, ironically, the very first event that we held down there was at her offices, okay. and she won first place. Again. Oh, wow. Uh, so in case you're ever at the – sorry, Danielle. Uh, if you're ever at the table with Danielle, just be warned. Uh, she knows a thing or two. And uh, so it's gone really well. It's yeah. been almost two years down there. Uh, and now we're going to take it to Silicon Valley oh, nice. and, uh, and L.A. That's great. Uh, in 2017. So I'm excited about that. Now, up until literally the last few months, it's totally been this – you know, 
part-time passion. I, I spend a few hours a month, right? Yeah. Just making sure logistics happens sure. and food gets there and so forth. But in order for it to get any bigger, I kind of feel like I have to spend more time on it. So do you read that? Do you read that great uh, book by Charles Duhigg, where he tells the story about the first woman to win like the international poker, like the World Poker Tournament? It's no, huh? There's a great book by a guy named Charles Duhigg. Ooh, it's spelled D-U-H-I-G-G, and huh. I think it's a, he wrote a book called The Power of Habit, mm-hmm. and then he and then he was like a former New York Times columnist and then he wrote a book called uh, do more better faster which sounds like a kind of pedestrian book but he's a great storyteller he tells this great story about the first woman to win like the world poker championship oh it's really? a really great great story huh I'll and you might really enjoy it. given given your love of the game of poker you might really because he goes into a lot of things about the game of poker that i didn't yeah. appreciate because I, I don't really play yeah exactly well and and you know if i could indulge if you would indulge me so i would share with you also uh one of the things i've learned over 10 years yeah. of playing poker with founders uh yeah. is that not every founder is into poker uh, now the folk, the, the founders who I would meet and I would say, Hey, you know, we do this thing. If you want to come I'm like, Oh, I'm not really into poker. I'm like, you should come anyway. Just have dinner. Yeah, just hang out, yeah. Right. But it was always, you know, that messaging only happened when I was talking, uh, face to face with someone. Yeah. And so, you know, over the years we've built up there, there's always a handful of people who come, they just have dinner and then they got to leave. And right. I totally get that. You know, yeah. poker is a, it's a, it's a game that you got to kind of want to play. Um, but I would always encourage them. Yeah, but it's it's the friendliest game on planet Earth, right? It's super low stakes, right? It's not about the money. It's not about – it's about meeting people and building relationships. And so I'd always encourage – hey, just try it, right? It, you know, for 10 bucks, yeah. you know, you're getting free dinner and free beer like all night long. Sit down and just try it. Yeah. They would try it. And, and you know, uh, we get every – Every level from World Series poker players, bracelet winners, down to like, I've never played before, but I'm willing to try. We even have like cheat sheets on every table so you can like see how the hand ranks are and stuff like that. Um, it really is not about the poker. And if I could do this with Scrabble or, sure. or Go Fish or whatever, I would. But poker just has these really interesting elements. So uh, I would always encourage people, though, no, just come for dinner. So then I thought, well, wait a minute. Why don't we – it always turns out that it's about 90 minutes. You get there. You have dinner. We yeah. do some announcements. People have a chance to introduce themselves. And then we – it's like it's there's a whole founder's dinner event that happens before we even touch cards. Yeah. So, you know, so over the last few months, we sort of – you know, we split that into really two things. There's two – you can you can reserve – when you RSVP, you can RSVP for dinner only. Okay. Or you can RSVP for dinner and a poker if you oh, want nice. to play the poker. Uh, and I think that's really helped people sort of get over their, 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 it's not a fear of poker, but it's just this disregard for poker. It's like, I don't care about po- poker is sure. a, it's, it's gambling or it's just a silly game and I don't get it. Sure. Uh, it's always struck me as, a, as, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, you can please chime in here, but poker's always struck me as a game. It's like the perfect combination of, of it's a combination of skill and BS. So there's some combination there. <laughs> it, it appeals to a broad cross section of people because it does require a, a, a kind of a complexion of skills, right? It's not mm-hmm. pure skill. Yes. It's not just pure knowledge. There's some, there's some sort of. Yes, it's a definitely a skill based game. Right. However, there's a depending on how the game is structured, there's a, there's always an element of luck, right. right? Because when you play any, in fact, even if it's a purely gambling game, you know you can only really measure results over a very long period of time, sure. right? Where the statistical swings can happen, and then in the long run. You know, your results over the long run are what matters. Now, in poker, you play any given poker game. You could be, you know, the best player in Seattle and lose to the worst player in Seattle. That could happen. The card could just come the wrong way and you could lose. Now, over the long haul, right, I, I... you know, I'd want to bet on Phil Gordon, right, before I would bet on you sure. every single time. Safe bet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, mostly he's going to be around toward the end at the final table or in yeah. the money or something like that because he does have a lot of skill. Yeah. But we actually structure there, – there's ways to structure poker games so that uh, it keeps the people who are the most skilled from okay. just dominating, okay. right? Okay. So we actually structure it in a way – so we've had some, some players who are very novice players – who got some good cards and and played okay and won right, uh, and you know often the the best players will complain about that like oh, oh yeah. man no oh, I can't control this now I feel like I'm you know I'm I'm at a disadvantage because I can't control things like yeah that's on purpose right we do this every month your purpose here is not to win sure. a big stakes poker sure. game it, you're here to to help other startups so um, so. 
now that we've sort of broken those things in two, yeah. uh, they, right now they, they always happen together. Okay. Uh, but in the future, as we grow uh, Startup Haven yeah. and go to more and more cities, uh, we'll start to do some other things to help founders help other founders. In fact, one of the things we're going to do in 2017, we're launching uh, this thing called Founder to Founder Forum. Huh. So one of the elements that I think makes Poker 2.0, Startup Poker 2.0, so powerful is after dinner, everybody stands around. We have a microphone if we need it. And everyone who attends has a chance to take 30 seconds and introduce themselves. Hey, my name is Bob. I'm working on this. Yeah. And then make an ask or make an offer. Huh. And that, that process, every single, I mean, I, uh, you know, one of the things that keeps me doing this over and over and over again is I see the connections that happen, right. the problems that get solved, the help that gets delivered. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's always a mix. Some people like, yeah, we're looking for an iOS dev or, you know, some really pedestrian thing in the startup right. world, right? But, you know, maybe somebody knows somebody. Uh, my, my favorite ones are where someone makes an offer. And they say, look, you know, I'm really good at quantitative marketing. If in your startup, if you're struggling with how to get that to work, let me know. I'll spend some time with you. You know, and it, it's always free of charge. Nobody's, you know, nobody's, nobody's there to sell anything. Right. In fact, part of our code of conduct is you can't be there to sell stuff. Right. Um, and just seeing those connections get made. But after the event, you know, every month I get a few emails. Hey, there was this guy who's wearing a blue checkered shirt, tan pants, who's at that table by the corner. He said he could help us. All right. And I didn't get his contact. Yeah. Can you connect me? So after every event, I make some connections. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I could just say, look, you guys, if you want to keep helping each other, go to Founder Founder Forum. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you can make asks and offers. It's like the simplest website that's ever been built. Because I, what, one of the things I know is that founders don't have time for yet another website, right? So, right. so we constrain it so that if you're on there, all you can do is ask for a favor, right? If you need some help, or you can offer some help. Huh. And if there's, you can't post anything on there if it would be appropriate to post it anywhere else. You know about STS, right? Yeah. The Seattle Tech Startup yeah. Listserv, right? Um, lots of best practices, technical stuff happens out there. People help each other out there all the time. Yeah. If you have a question, uh, an ask, that you could ask out there, you should ask it out there. Don't ask it here, okay. right? Uh, just imagine that every time you make an ask, you're tapping on the shoulder of a busy founder right. and you're interrupting them to right. say, hey, I need some help. If you could ask like other people, you should ask them. Sure. Save this for those things that only a founder can help another founder with, huh. right? Great idea. Um, and so you can make asks and offers and that's it. Yeah. Uh, and you can get banned. You know, you won't get permanently banned, for, you know, uh, but we're going to be very careful. Like if you're out there like, hey, will you upvote me on Product Hunt? Dude, I'm going to shut you off. <laughs> I can't believe you just wasted. Like we have 1,500 founders, execs, investors in four cities right now. Yeah. That's probably going to be 2,500. And you're like tapping every single one of them on the street. Can you upvote me in Product Hunt? Yeah. What a waste of time, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to do that kind of stuff okay, on, okay. on this site. Have you built um, this site yet? Is yeah, it... we're going to launch it in January. Okay, wonderful. So, okay, well, <laughs> can you tell us what the site address is going to be now? We... Yeah, so it's not up yet. Okay. Uh, it'll take you, I think it takes you to start a founder site right now, but it'll be called founder to founder. Founder to founder. Wow, that's great. And, that's great. uh, and you'll have to you have to apply for membership, like okay. even Startup Haven. If you wanted to come to Startup Haven poker events, you yeah. have to apply first, okay. and you have to be a full time founder. You can't have a job anywhere else. Okay. You have to have something that smells like traction. You have to have a product, a team, some revenue, customers, like some investors. That's always the easiest one. If you have VC investors, I know you're serious because you right. wouldn't get VC investors unless you were serious. Right. Um, but if you're kind of working on a project nights and weekends, trying to decide if you right. should quit your job, then this is not for you. It's not a side hustle. Thing. No, that's right. It's not a side hustle. That's one of the best things about the event. And just to, you know, as, as we kind of wrap things up, we should definitely direct people to where they can reach out and and, um, and ask for an invite or, or su submit an application. But the thing that, that struck me about your event, it, I had been to several different kinds of startup events over the years in Seattle. And like you said, every time I would go, it would be a real crapshoot as in terms of who I'd talk to. So it's so a couple of problems. One is I'd go to some bar and it would be like a mixer for people that are associated with, you know, GeekWire or Washington Startup Alliance or, you know, various, various organizations. And while I was at the bar, unless I was seeing people that I knew there, I'd probably talk to maybe three or four people. And if three out of those four people are people trying to get me to sign up for a bank account or wealth management people, it just, it, and when you turn to somebody and you say, Hey, what do you do? And they say, I'm a, 
a wealth manager or something like that, you're kind of in that conversation for a while. I mean, unless you're going to be rude and just walk away. If you introduce yourself to somebody, you're, you're going to probably talk to them for five or 10 minutes. And so spending five or 10 minutes with three different service providers over the course of an evening seems like a real waste to me. Um, and so when I came to the, to my first, uh, poker 2.0 event, what blew me away was, you know, as a result of this invite only list, Every time you turn to somebody in that room and say, hey, what are you working on? You get an interesting story about something that you can learn from or relate to. I mean, it's it's just an easy conversation with anybody in that room. And, um, and you never have to worry about who you're going to sit down next to and whether it's going to be a good conversation. And then the other thing that's great about it is poker. You know, you go if you go to a startup event and there's no activity, then you're just kind of walking around and people just kind of group up. And unless you know people, you're, you're, you know, you're going to be stuck talking to people you already know. Um, poker gives you something to do with other people over the course of a several hours. Um, it's, it's really great. I, and, and the more you see the same faces. So, you know, if you go to, if you go to one of Bob's events, you know, if you, if you go four or five, six times, I guarantee you, you're going to see people there that you met from the time before and you'll remember what they're working on. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, Bobby, you've also got geeks on the trail, right? You're still doing that? Is that still going on? Or it is that... still going on. We're, we're, you know, 2017, we're going to make a decision about that. You know, when that got started, uh, it really was just I wanted to walk. Right. And because what I found is as a startup founder, your life is spent sitting in a chair right. or standing at a whiteboard. That's right. pretty much your life, right? You're sitting or standing. You're not moving. And, you know, I used to actually be in shape. I ran triathlons and I, yeah. you know, I was fit. And then I felt like, you know, for a long time now, I've been an entrepreneur and I just, you know, my, if I'm not busy with meetings or building something, I'm, you know, my mind is busy and I don't take the time to, yeah. to move, to move. Well, and I, so, wanted to come, I wanted to come to just the Geeks on Trail for a long time. I, yeah. Well, I, so what we did was we, we, you know, we said, okay, if you want to come, it used to be, we had four days a week. And it was host like I was hosting the one at Green Lake, and okay. at, and and John uh, Seacrest was doing one on the east side, and yeah. then I was doing one down at um, Myrtle Edwards Park, yeah. and and we tried to make it so like from anywhere you could find, and you could do either an hour walk, sure. uh, which is about three miles, or you could do the two hours, which is you know about six miles. Yeah. And the the emphasis was on make it productive time. It doesn't have to be a waste. Like yeah. make phone calls, schedule phone calls, schedule a walking meeting. Do your email on your mobile while you're sure. doing it, right? Sure. Uh, bring a sketch pad and like write down, right? Whatever you're, you're not there. You don't have to be social if you don't want okay, to. Okay. Uh, if you want to though, and you find anybody else who wants to be social, you can be social. So we did it. And it you know, I, I don't know how many million miles I walked yeah. uh, over the first couple of years. Uh, but then I found that, you know, it was too much of an effort, frankly, to have to show up and host the thing, right? Yeah. I wanted it to be like, you know, people would show up yeah. if they wanted to kind of hang out and walk with other founders. Or they wouldn't, right? And if you showed up and you waited five minutes and nobody else showed up, you should just go do the walk by yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and we had people who were signing up. We set up a meetup.com uh, site for it. We had, I don't know how many people we have signed up for now, like 75 or something have signed up for sure. it. But if you go to any given event, unless it's me or John, who's like taking you by the hand and saying, okay, now we're going to go and here's what we're going to turn. It just, it wasn't happening. I see. So, you know, the, too much friction for it to be something that I think has longevity. So yeah. this, this, you know, this year, John and I decided that we're going to see what we can do to make it uh, valuable enough and simple enough that if you're a founder, you're like, God, you know, I do spend my, my, my life at a keyboard or a whiteboard. I'm just going to go walk for three miles, right. three days a week. And here's a, maybe I'll run into somebody interesting and I'll have a good conversation too, but I'm just going to do it. Yep. And if we can't make that happen, it's a good idea, but a bad business, right? It's yeah. not a business per se, but uh, if you can't make something sustainable yeah. without putting in more effort than you can extract value from it, then it's not a viable thing, right? So, you know, it'll either be sunset or spun up <laughs> this, gotcha. this, this year. Well, I like, I like what you're doing, Bob. Thank you so much for everything you do in the community. My did you say your dad was a radio guy? Yeah, he did. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he had a radio show in 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 California, yeah. uh, Central California, for like fifteen years. Wow! And then he had a, a cable television show. It was the he had the he had the distinction of having the longest running phone in live cable television show in the country. Wow! Uh, I don't know if it's still standing record, uh, but yeah. So wow. you know this this. Sitting across from a mic with you feels a little bit familiar now. Well, I, I think you picked up some of your dad's voice. Yeah, well, you know, if you talk to me like at 6.30 in the morning, <laughs> my morning voice is a radio voice, and then it just turns into mud later in the day. 
That's great. Well, it's awesome <laughs> to have you on the show. Okay, so sometime in January, founder to founder.com is going to launch. Yes. And if people want to find out like, how to sign up for Poker 2.0, how do they do that? So go to startuphaven.com. And right in the middle of the page, there will be a button that says apply. And there's a very simple, literally 90 seconds to fill out a form. That form will trigger an alert. Someone, I'm putting together uh, a membership board. Now there's so many people that I need, you know, I can't do it all myself. And frankly, I don't want to be the decider uh, on who gets in and who doesn't. So I want to bring a couple other people into that decision process. But, you know, just know that what we're looking for is you're a full-time founder. You're not working nights and weekends. You have you don't have a full-time job. Uh, You might be consulting on the side a little bit, but if you're consulting 40 hours a week and then you're doing this on the side, it's probably not a good fit. Uh, And you have something that looks like traction. You have a product, you have some customers, revenue, some investors. You have something that looks like you're not just a lone wolf with an idea trying to scrape it out. Not that I don't admire that, but in terms of creating value for everybody who's going to uh, attend these events... And you know, we're going to have people, people come to startup poker events who have exited multiple times, yeah. who have raised millions and have millions in revenue and millions of customers. And, you know, they can help people at a very high level. Right. Right. You're not ready for that kind of help yet. Right. right? So we're trying to build a, a, you know, a group of people who can all help each other. Now, you may have domain expertise that, you know, Jonathan Spazzato could really use. Right? right. But the chances are, you know, there's a there's a um, disparity, an imbalance in that relationship. So we're trying to create uh, an environment where founders can help founders. And, you know, you have to achieve a certain level of in it in order to be able to benefit and to benefit others. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm, Bob, I'm, I'm really glad you, you made the time to, to join us today. This is great. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll have to have you on another time. I know Bob has a whole nother great story about a Kickstarter project that he ran with his daughters, which I find to be particularly inspirational as a parent. Um, and so we got to have you back on to talk about that at some point, but um, I would love probably to wrap that. up now. Uh, um, yeah. I'm grateful for you guys. Uh, thank you so much yeah, for having me for sure, down yeah. here. And, and I'm, I'm, I had a great time. Yeah. Super fun to be on the show. Have you thanks. The show. And thanks everyone else for listening. We'll see.